Ian and I are so excited to share Season 3, Ian Fleming's Moonraker, with you. We're also very excited to invite you to read along with us and support the pod by purchasing the book from our affiliate link, which you can find right in our show notes. You can also find that link and grab some E&E merchandise at our website, eggsandespionage.com. Thank you all for your listening support and enjoy the season. Hi, I'm Ian. And I'm Chris. And this is Eggs and Espionage. The origins of James Bond. not all that was pulsing the audio meter what do you what do you call that green the db meter, like decimal meter mm-hmm. yeah i just see the little pulsing decimal meter that's how i know if someone's there's a living human on the other end of this call what is beeping what are you doing man someone's recording me chris against my will it's probably the fleming estate <laughs> yeah they're on to us. <laughs> All right. Very strange. Chapter 15. Rough Justice. Wow. That was easy. Thought Bond as Drax's office suddenly falls silent with everyone casting the blame for murder and sabotage on Krebs. But does it clear everyone else, he wonders? Drax is quick to change the subject and give Bond a rundown of launch day. Everything seems to be taken care of, except the base of the cliff where the exhaust escapes. It could be a weak point, Drax suggests. Why don't you take Galabrand and explore? Bond agrees, and casually lies about visiting the firing point before his and Gal's excursion later that afternoon. Instead, he heads back to the main house, sneaks up the stairs to his room, and finds Krebs, stooped over and snooping through his belongings. Bond walks up, and kicks Krebs directly in the behind, sending the smaller man flying across the room into a mahogany dresser that quickly knocks him unconscious. After rummaging his pockets, Bond wakes Krebs for the interrogations, but all the information he gets from Krebs is how to be cursed out in German. Then, before Bond can really start beating the man, Krebs breaks free and runs off. Oh well. He's Drax's problem now, rationalizes Bond. Perhaps Krebs is only a snoop and has no real connection to the case. At least he'd be able to spend the afternoon with Galabrand. Unlike Ian's room, there was a moment's silence in the room during which Bond reflected how odd it was that suspicions should have fallen so suddenly and so unanimously. Why am I reading that funny? Without dissent, all on one. Bond is wondering why everyone's ganging up on Krebs now. Is that what's happening? Yeah, because he likes an underdog. That's what we all do. <laughs> He's Wait, like, that guy now that we all think me. Krebs is it, like, I don't think Krebs is it anymore. He, someone's got to stick up for this guy. I mean, what about my charity for shifty-eyed people? <laughs> <laughs> I raised 10,000 pounds last year for shifty-eyed people. I mean, it's a serious affliction. <laughs> I don't trust any of them, but they should still be well off. Yeah, so the chapter begins, they've, they've written Krebs off. Oh, that piece of shit. Drax has a plan for him. I'll have him take notes in a van somewhere tomorrow, so he'll be out of the way. But eventually we'll arrest him, you know. just We'll just keep him out of the way. Who cares? He's peeping Tom. 
Then he tells Bond, here's what's going to happen for the rest of the week, every day. Here's our plan. And Bond's like, oh, cool. Some good plot movement here. Right. So then Bond lies to him for reasons he doesn't fully understand. He doesn't know yet. He's so good. He doesn't even know why he does the things he does. <laughs> he's so good at his job. He doesn't know why he's lying. <laughs> I feel the same way. I'm basically lying all the time. And I just feel like it makes me good at my job. Because he's fucking wigging it. He really doesn't. He, he never like knows no what's plan. going on. He has no plan being down here. Yeah, so I mean, but Drax makes a little social plan for him. He says, you know, the only thing I think is um, worrisome about this whole thing, if someone's going to come and mess up our rock, is they'll come in through the cliffs of Dover into our exhaust pit, and they'll come up underneath the rock and do something. So why don't you and Miss Brand go down there later this afternoon and check it out? And Bond's like, sure. And then he's like, okay, in the meantime, I'll just lie to you a little bit. I don't know why. It's because I'm good at my job. Yeah, what he lies about is basically where he's going, right? He says, mm-hmm. I think I'm going to have a walk over by the firing point while you guys are doing your next task, basically. So, so you know, their little meeting breaks up and he heads out. Um, he pauses to gaze longingly and respectfully at Galibrand as she talks to the, the chief scientist. Before we get too far ahead, there is a nice... Ahead of what? He's gazing longingly at her. That's where we are. Drax does give like a fairly pithy overview of like what's going to happen. So if you remember, as a reader, we're only on like Wednesday, right? This whole book started on Monday. So we're only two days in. And Drax basically outlines what's going to happen the next two days until the rocket launch on Friday. Anyway, go ahead. Gazing longingly. Yeah, he's, he's on his way out and he just looks her over. And you know he's he's feeling she's very innocent, but she's also all girls are innocent to Bond. Yeah, yeah, she's super. She's like a a school. Well, he describes her as a schoolgirl looking up at a Christmas tree. You didn't even set the, the scene, Ian. I'm impurity. thirty. I set you. I set the scene, and then you interrupted me to go back and talk about scheduling. <laughs> like I set the scene like a while ago, and then what do you want me to set the scene twice? Come on now. Yes, I do. Because <laughs> I clearly missed it the first time. All right, let me set the scene. They're in a little meeting, and the meeting breaks up between Drax and Gala and everything, and Bond does a little light lying, as he does. Mm-hmm. And everyone breaks off to go about their, their duties, um, and Gala wanders over to talk to the chief scientist and watch the rocket being fueled. Bond, he's on his way out to go to the wherever he's going to go to. He doesn't even know because he was just lied about where he's going. But he just pauses for a minute and he looks over at Gala as she's looking at the rocket. He notes a certain air of innocence about her. She mm-hmm. stands there looking at the rocket. An innocence like a, a schoolgirl looking up at a Christmas tree that's just been freshly decorated, full of hope and wonder, mm. except for the impudent pride of her jutting breasts. <laughs> <laughs> Swept up by the thrown back head and shoulders. Mm. I like how you added a little bit bit of detail about the Christmas tree, Ian. Yeah, I like that. It was elaborate a little bit mm-hmm. after I set nice. the scene. But, but you then didn't, you didn't elaborate on the jutting breast. So way to way to have a little restraint there. I mean, Ian Fleming got the jutting breast pretty good there. I mean, he did describe them as impudent. They have an impudent pride. Like, how uh, dare her breasts stick out like that? Yeah. That's cheeky. <laughs> and Bond's like, ah, oh, man, this innocent, desirable girl. But then reminds himself, yeah, but she knows how to kick a man and where. <laughs> yeah. She can probably break my arm more easily and quickly than I can break hers. Mm-hmm. 
Which and is nice. So he's like, you know, he gets caught up in this little schoolgirl fantasy of her, and then he's like, but you know, she actually could break me. She in could places. injure me, yeah. Um, and he's like, man, but and like half of her basically belongs to Scotland Yard, but there's always that other half. So Bond. Yeah, he got pretty weird in his head after that. It does get a little weird. Bond has basically nowhere to go. So he's like, no. the, the adults in the room go to like do their job about the rocket and Bond's like I guess I'll wander back to my room because I lied and said I was going to the firing point yeah but he knows what he's doing because he heads back to the room and and when he gets back to the big house hey everyone spycraft at home alert we need we need like a thing for that he's like alright so he's going to his room he's gonna walk he's walking super quietly softly through the big house up to his room and then he goes up the stairs and he he walks like on the edge, the furthest edge of the stairs, close to like the walls where they won't creak, so he can make sure that he's as silent as possible. You know, goes down to his room and the door's already open, and he knows who's in there. Mm. He knows who's in there before he even gets there. Fumbled on his legs and elbows, with his butt sticking up towards the door, is Krebs. Mm-hmm. Trying to get into Bond's leather leather briefcase. So at this point of the story, I start to like love Krebs because I feel like Krebs now is like kind of a knock around sidekick who's just mm-hmm. like an overly it's caricatured like, like scrawny. Yeah, he's like a scrawny, like nervous, shifty eyed German who's like always messing things up. So he's, and Bond he's, sees this like target. <laughs> he sees this goofy target with his butt stuck straight up in the air because like i imagine he's like fully like arched back with his like butt up in the air as he tries to like figure out like bond's combination lock and the target was tempting and bond did not hesitate his teeth showed in a hard smile (laughs) he took two quick paces to the room and his foot lashed out all of his force was behind the point of his shoe and his balance and timing were perfect this guy is like a soccer style kicker penalty shot Kicks this guy so hard. Krebs lunges forward. His head hits like the cabinet or the filing cabinet or something, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And it's basically like laid out. Knocks him out. He like blacks him out. Yeah, he's knocked unconscious. Yeah. Kicked him so hard he knocked him out. Bond rifles through his pockets and steals some skeleton keys, a spring knife, and an obscene little truss-shaped black leather Kosh, which I looked up because I didn't know what it was. It's mm-hmm. basically like a blackjack. Mm-hmm. And a blackjack, for those of you who don't know what it is, is a weighted bag they use to knock people unconscious. Mm-hmm. It takes Krebs five minutes to, to come back to, and Bond grabs the Vichy bottle of water, which basically mm-hmm. is sparkling spring water from Spain. Despite the fact that he's got a gun in the room and, and he is a weapon, human weapon himself, threatens Krebs with a bottle and, and says... Basically, like, what the fuck are you doing here? Krebs is like, I got nothing. He's like, you better answer me again or I'll, quote, beat the daylight out of you until this breaks and then use the neck for some plastic surgery. Who told you to come to my room? <laughs> right, and so this is where it gets back to being, like, a detective novel. I mean, this is Humphrey Bogart. I'll beat the daylight out of you until this breaks and then I'll use the neck for some plastic surgery. Yeah. Who told you to go over my room, man? Eh? Your 30s accent is terrible. It is terrible. I'm embarrassed that that happened, but I can clearly envision Humphrey Bogart using this line. And I mean, uh, Krebs this is like responds Maltese Falcon, right? Like, yeah, smack exactly. him around. Krebs responds in German, Leck mich am Arsch, which means just kiss my ass. Uh, and then, like, runs out of there like a little coward. Mm hmm. 
doesn't fight. <laughs> yeah, but he kind of it's I I imagine it is kind of a hilarious thing. He catches Bond off guard and like gets past him, which is yeah. embarrassing because he's kind of a, a little goofball. And Bond just looks after him wistfully and is like, "What a crafty little brute!" Oh well, we'll get him later. And then Bond thanks thanks himself, gives props to himself for like I guess it wasn't just instinct that I lied. Man, I'm good at my job. <laughs> you just do random stuff all day. Make you know, shit twice up. Twice a day, you get it right. Boom, broken clock. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> James Bond is awesome. So he just cleans up the room, grabs his gun. I don't know. Probably does a little sh- light tidying. Somebody brings a telegram for him, and he finds out that yes, oh, right. Major Talon called from inside the house. Uh, no, nobody on the um, the light ship saw anything because it was foggy, and no one from anywhere else could see because it's too close to shore. So basically, his his questions about the um, the Admiral chart kind of led to a dead end, and he just found out that, yeah, Major Talon made the phone call right before he died from within the house. Right. So, so perhaps he, somebody was listening. So basically, Bond, Bond creates two scenarios in his brain. Either all the stuff that's weirdly happening, the murder, the fingerprints, the stuff on the map, Krabs is all like this weird coincidence that really is innocent in its nature, or there's some real dark shit going on here that Bond can't quite put his finger on yet, and he's confused. He doesn't know which one to to basically go after. And then he remembers, oh, wait, after lunch, I get to hang out with Gallo all by myself. Mm-hmm. That's a better picture to focus on. <laughs> oh, yeah. What am I doing here again? Right. <laughs> I am the impudent breasts. I get to spend a whole afternoon with those. I'm gonna get her to, to look at me like she looked at that rocket, that Christmas tree. <laughs> Chapter sixteen, a golden day. It was a wonderful afternoon of blue and green and gold. Bond and Gala left the main house on foot and walked along the edge of the Dover cliffs, overlooking the English Channel and its lazy boat traffic. They pause in a field of flowers, taking in the resplendent day, but are urged on their journey by alarm bells signaling the fueling of the rocket had begun. The couple makes their way down a steep cliff path while Bond recounts his encounter with Krebs and Drax's enraged response at learning of it. The two swap information and size each other up as they make their way along the rocky coastline to the cave which will vent the rocket exhaust. Bond brainstorms ways of attacking the rocket in search for vulnerabilities, but he finds few. The only thing left to do is swim the channel. Bond coerces Gala into joining him for the swim and ambushes her with an underwater kiss. It's all in the line of the duty, he tells her. Still, he finds nothing suspicious, even if a submarine could make it up to the cave. As the two land the beach drying, the kiss goes unmentioned. Bond tries to learn more about Gala, and is thwarted by a sudden, calamitous explosion of the cliff wall above them, collapsing down. Bond throws himself over Gala, and both are nearly covered by debris. Bond struggles to pull himself out, then Gala. When she finally reopens her eyes, 
The relief is so great that Bond vomits. Perfect day for it here in upstate New York. Here in where Eugene it was the as first well. true spring day. The temperature reached 71 degrees. You could smell the, the soil this morning, the wet, damp earth that was no longer frozen. It sounds like you had a wonderful afternoon of blue and green and gold. It really was. Oh, wait. Is that the first line of this <laughs> chapter? Yeah, and so Ian Fleming's setting a very romantic scene, a romantical picture of the English coast in May. Apparently it's warmer in May than I would have expected on the English coast. Yeah, and Fleming starts this chapter with like his typewriter on top of a map of the English coast because he just name drops a bunch of stuff. <laughs> it really does, right? Like from the cliffs of Margate down to the North Foreland. And I've lived in England for a small period, you know? And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about, guy. <laughs> Painting a picture of Bond and Galibrand on the the cliffs of Dover, looking out over the English Channel, mm -hmm. admiring the shipping lane and all its bustling industry. Yeah. A gorgeous day and humdrum of a slow afternoon, if you will, in the mm -hmm. English country. Yeah, and then they hear some blasts on the uh, the RAF horns, you know, to signal that the fueling on the Moonraker missile has begun and they mm -hmm. should probably make themselves a little scarce in case anything goes wrong and they are vaporized. So Bond is like quick to move them along on their walk down to the bottom of the cliffs just in case anything goes wrong. He says, there's really nothing to see and if there happened to be something, we probably wouldn't survive it at this range. Pretty much, yeah. Bond's a realist. The ice of Gala's reserve melted quickly in the sunshine. Mm -hmm. The exotic gaiety of her clothes, a black and white striped cotton shirt tucked into a white hand-stitched black leather belt above a medium-length skirt and a shocking pink. I like that she changed clothes for this afternoon saunter on the mm -hmm. beach. He's really, I mean, their mission here is to check for sabotage, right? You know, like they're like, is there any way the Moonraker could be sabotaged? That's the purpose of this excursion. Yeah. And it was suggested, we should remind our listeners, it was suggested by Drax that this is where Bond should go look. Mm-hmm. You know, despite that very serious task, they really do make quite a gay day of it. They're kind of chatting, getting to know each other, and she looks to him and says, I wouldn't have thought you were a person to get sentimental. Don't people in your section of the service make a business of killing? Boy, how wrong she is, man. Hasn't she read any of the books? This dude's a sentimental freak. He is very sentimental. This goes back to something you always say about James Bond, is that Galibrand's making fun of him um, because he doesn't know any of the names of the flowers, and she's like, they're walking through a meadow, and she's pointing out everything. But then Bond is like, well, I may not know the names of the flowers, but there's an Indian professor, Bose, who's written a treatise on the nervous system of flowers. He's measured their reactions to pain and even recorded the scream of a rose being picked. It must be one of the most heartrending sounds in the world. And I was like, what a hipster doofus. Like, he's like, oh, we don't pick flowers anymore because you're causing too much pain to the flowers according to this abstract Indian professor. You probably never heard of him. <laughs> he does. I mean, this is a good chapter, though, for picking up Bond game. Now, if you want to spit mad game like a James Bond, you got to look for these like clues. And one of the things he does here that's really sweet, he like makes Galibrand really guilty about picking a flower. So guilty. So she's like, I don't know what to do with this thing. Like now I feel guilty. I murdered a flower. I caused it all this pain. And he's like, well, you know, you already said 
I'm a murderer, so you might as well give it to me. Tucks it in his his buttonhole of his shirt, which is not only stylish, but like you give a flower to your sweetie. Poetically, like forcing her consent of this relationship he wants by like tricking her into giving him a flower, and then he's like, "You gave me a flower, so." Doesn't saying. take much. Doesn't take much for Bond to get get the hint, I guess. But then, yeah. So then, after that little bit, set the scene. They start talking business. They they sort of go over Krebs together and mm-hmm. sort of confirm that yeah, he's a weird dude. So I I thought it was interesting how as they're walking down, Gal is kind of like basically starting to imagine what her life would look like if she were with Bond. Is the way I interpret this, right? She looks over at this, quote, ruthless brown face of a man beside her. Did he have moments of longing for the peaceful, simple things of life? Of course not. He liked Paris and Berlin and New York and trains and airplanes and expensive food and, yes, certainly expensive women. Man, did she fucking nail it. So <laughs> she, I wrote, I just literally wrote nailed it. I wrote the same my, thing. I wish you could see my page right now. Like, I, my page says nailed it. <laughs> Yeah, I and mean, it's I almost think, like Fleming knew who Bond was when he was writing from her perspective. You know, like, <laughs> true story. Yeah, so she's crushing on him a little bit. Um, and they're still just, you know, they're just trekking along down to the base of the cliffs. And when they get down there, I mean, what they're there to check out is the the, the rocket launch hole. site is designed. Yeah. The exhaust hole, right? Like, the rocket launches from from, like, a tube underground. So it's, you know, defended against all attacks. And the exhaust goes out the the bottom of the cliff out into the English Channel. Um, so they get down there and they check out the, the sabotage potential of this like tube in the side, this giant like exhaust tube in the side of a cliff. Mm-hmm. And then Bond mm-hmm. like finally starts to do some spy work. So they get down to the water, starts to imagine like how could I break in? Best way he assumes someone could get in here would be either some sort of submarine or I, I come in on a kayak late at night. If I dive down, I can find my way into this tunnel. The two things he's looking, I mean, he's looking at, yes, you could kayak up to it, but then he wants to check if a submarine could get right up to it uh, because there's a little channel in the water that comes pretty close to the cliffs. People could get out. They could shoot like a rocket up into the base of you know the, the exhaust area. And then launch like right. phosphorus grenades and hope something explodes, and that may destroy the Moonraker. Yeah, and he's like, you know, um, getting and they away. Would certainly die. Getting yeah. away would be pretty nasty, as he calls it. But basically, it means a lot of people are going to die. But that wouldn't worry a Russian suicide squad. It was all quite feasible. You know, hindsight, the Cold War was a little silly, but imagine the kind of world you live in where, when the only feasible solution is a Russian suicide squad. Mm-hmm. coming in and you still think like yeah that could happen yeah that's kind totally. of fucked up <laughs> totally normal he does but then he washes this stuff away like constantly he can't really like keep this case in his head because he's like no like that's not gonna happen it's peacetime that's ridiculous even for my line of work um but it's at this point that he's starting to think about the attack and he's starting to show his tactical mind that the the true underlying like parallels of this chapter emerge because he's simultaneously he's pressing a sexual attack against Galabrand while they're looking at the potential for attack a physical attack on the Moonraker. I like um, how he did that. Yeah, it's it's a pretty interesting the the way that this tension underlines the chapter. There's those two forms of, of tension. 
well, I need to do my work and see if a submarine can get in here. So I'm going for a swim, and you should too. Yeah, those sly fox. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gala's eyes light up. Do you think I could? She asked doubtfully. I'm frightfully hot. But what are we going to wear? She blushed mm. at the thought of her brief and almost transparent nylon pants and brassiere. Mm. Sexy. But then Bond, so again, Bond, Bond's yeah. game. He comes, he's like, all right. So she's to on the defensive, press the attack. And he like really comes at her like aggressively right now. It is a little aggressive, right? Not being too subtle. He's like, to hell with that. You must have got some bits and pieces underneath. And I've got pants on. Come on, don't be a goose. It's all in the line of duty. Like, jeez, yeah. Bond. Now Bond's making it about her duty. Well, you better strip down, baby, if you want a job in the service. <laughs> yeah, in, the, in this world of non-consent, right? Even like those subtle stuff with Leolia where he's like, I'm not calling you by your first name. I'll call you whatever the fuck I want to call you. Yeah. And this one too, he's like, get naked, get in the fucking water over here. Come on, it's hot. You're hot, I'm hot, we're hot. It Let's is, go, it baby. Is, the Let's tone go. is more playful. <laughs> he's a little more playful, but it's still a little bit like, but aggressive. Yeah. Don't be a goose. I mean, he does set it up nicely. He's like, you. I'm going to go diving for the submarine channel. So, you know, like, you should just cool off. I'm not even going to be by you. It's yeah. like, don't even worry about yeah. it. Right. So she, she we undresses. We didn't even set that up. Gets... But, yeah, the reason he wants her to get in the water is because he wants to go swimming to see how easy it could be for a submarine to go right. through the channel. So they do that. And she gets in the water. She's swimming that... around, enjoying the day. May I say that that alone is impressive, that you can dive into water without lights goggles and just be like yep enough room in here for a submarine like what but you know like the the navy seals started as like the combat swimmers and that's a big part that's what they did and they like were trained to figure out how deep the water was Yeah, fair enough and they would just like dive and then come back up and like and just like keep track of how deep the water was and i guess bond has done a little combat swimming training i guess he's ready for that or he read a pamphlet on it he (laughs) at his desk Memorized. <laughs> he signed off on that one. Um, Gala goes to find a little place to undress, and as she looks up, Bond's already like halfway to the water because he's like a giddy schoolboy. And she mm-hmm. says, "Quote: He looked lithe and brown. The mm. blue pants were reassuring." Yeah, clothed. Oh, he doesn't want sex. He's wearing clothes. He's like swimming underwater. She jumps in to cool off. She's wondering like where he could be, and out of nowhere. Up jumps Bond, grabs her by the arm, and lays one on her lips. Mm-hmm. Boom. The attack has been launched. His arms around her and the swift, hard impact of his lips on hers. Damn you, she said furiously. But already he had dived again. It's so <laughs> like By juvenile, the time she right? spat out a mouthful of seawater and got her bearings, he was swimming blithely 20 yards away. She notes that Secret Service people always seem to have time for sex, however important their jobs might be. Again, kind kind of nails it. Although respectfully, in the books, Bond typically does wait till after the job is done before uh, he goes full coitus there. Mm-hmm. Rationalizes this whole thing. She's kind of pissed. She gets gets off the beach, and then it was like, well, you know, it it's, nice it's such a beautiful day. Boys will be boys. <laughs> yeah, and he actually he's you know he was aggressive there but he's pretty chill they get out of the water and they just lie on the beach drying off for a little while and he's thinking about like her body she's thinking about his body mm-hmm. you know like they're just kind of there but like he doesn't like push it like he's he's pretty chill he describes her as the pointed hillocks of her breasts mm. 
so close to him and the soft flat stomach descending into the mystery of her tightly closed thighs Mm. mysteries Mm -hmm. love a good mystery like this book so that mystery drives him nuts until he gets her talking as she's telling him a little bit about herself time kind of blurs yeah Fleming has a a, a difficult moment writing this how do I do this this is really some of his best writing he doesn't follow a linear time frame right like he pauses the story on the line now that I'm in the special branch in the special branch in the special branch when the bomb falls when the pilot miscalculates and the plane hits short of the runway when the blood leaves the heart and consciousness goes there are thoughts in the mind or words or perhaps a phrase of music which ring on for a few seconds before death like the dying clang of a bell it's like Dylan Thomas, man. Like really great writing before revealing to you while those words are like repeating in his head in the special branch, in the special branch. He sees a, a shock of black smoke, sees these white cliffs just start to fall down on him and make some, you know, quick goat thinking and basically just puts his body on top of galas and they're just caked in the chalky dust of the cliffs of Dover. Yeah, I mean, he takes he takes um, no credit for it later on. He's like, oh, man, I can't believe I, I thought to put myself on top of you. Like, where did that thought come from? Like, it saved our lives that I rolled yeah. on top of you. And I was like, dude, you literally spent the whole chapter thinking about rolling on top of her. It's not well, a surprise that. where that thought came yeah. from. <laughs> where that instinct <laughs> came from. No, sex definitely saved your life here, buddy. It's sex okay. And- he do, you know, it's we we've talked in the last two books. Like they often will cite instinct and skill as luck and good fortune for Bond, and then the things that are truly just total luck, they they're like Bond's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he basically has to like dig himself out of this truck, gets her out, covered in dust. He f- sees that she opens her eyes, and he's so relieved that he turns around and just vomits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's how the chapter ends. Chapter done. And that's how this um, moment of the podcast ends also because I drank so much alcohol during it that (laughs) (laughs) we became wretchingly sick at the end of each recording. Only when Bond's vomiting. I mean, we started with that perfect golden day and now we end with vomit. I think that's a perfect White dust and vomit, yeah. White dust and vomit. Mm. Name of the band. That sounds like a cocaine... (laughs) A cocaine biography. <laughs> White dust and bomb. Eggs and Espionage is mixed, edited, and petulantly produced by Flashback Productions. Music in this episode is brought to you by none other than White Dust and Vomit. Thank you for joining us in Season 3 as we explore Ian Fleming's Moonraker, the third novel in his James Bond series. In the next episode, Bond and Gala recover from an unfortunate incident on a drive to London. Gala uses her pickpocket training to find out what Drax is up to. All coming up on Eggs and Espionage, The Origins of James Bond.